Uh, we've said a lot uh, over the last days about these three uh, marks of being, these three characteristics of things that we tend to ignore, uh, the things are impermanent, that they are dukkha, they're somehow unreliable, unsatisfactory, suffering, painful. And the, the nature of things is that there is no fixed um, essential ego or self, either within the person as a kind of unchanging identity, or within things or conditions or societies or, or anything else. And today I'd like to turn that reflection uh, back onto, onto Buddhism itself. It's uh, ironic in a way that uh, the very tradition that uh, puts forth this vision of the world does not always seem to recognize that these characteristics apply equally to itself. The Buddhism, too, is impermanent, it's unsatisfactory, and it has no fixed identity. Now, we can see this very clearly from an historical perspective when we look back over the last two and a half thousand years, we can see that there has no, in no way has there been a kind of monolithic, unchanging Buddhist church that's remained um, the same under all conditions. But rather, on the contrary, we see a tradition that has undergone um, extraordinary permutations and changes and adaptations not only in its outward form again we can, might think of say a Japanese Zen monk and a Zen monastery and then flash to a Tibetan monastery in say Hlasa and a very ornate gilded temple with all kinds of iconography these things are really rather different from an, a Martian's point of view, they would probably not appear to have much to do with the same thing at all. But also in terms of how Buddhism has evolved ideas, in terms of its own internal philosophies, very often philo philosophical um, ideas and, and views that have emerged through its interactions with, in India, uh, Hindu philosophy in China with Taoist and Confucian ideas and elsewhere with other indigenous shamanic or, or animistic concepts and Buddhism has not generally found its way into new social and historical situations as a kind of conquering force that sought to suppress and to eliminate everything that it sees as other. But rather, it has always uh, sought ways to accommodate native beliefs and views. 
it's been influenced through its dialogue with other traditions in such a way that entirely new forms of Buddhism have appeared. And this has really been the creative engine that has driven um, the continuity and the flourishing of the very tradition itself. On the other hand, um, this historical perspective that for us perhaps seems entirely obvious, if for example I were to ask you why is Japanese Buddhism so different from Tibetan Buddhism, I suspect most of you would say, well, because Japan is a very different culture, a very different history, a very different society to that of Tibet. But many traditional Buddhists wouldn't see it that way at all. They would say that if they were a a, a Japanese Buddhist, Buddhist, for example, they would say, well, no, it's because in Japan we have the true Dharma. (laughs) In Tibet, they don't. I remember once when I... Um, I used to be a Tibetan Buddhist monk then I went to study in Korea many of the Korean monks I met when I told them about the Tibetan tradition they would say oh the Tibetans they're just a bunch of shamans (laughs) and then I remember going back to see my Tibetan friends in Switzerland and told them about Korea and they said oh the Koreans they're just a bunch of shamans (laughs) (laughs) and so there's been Um, because of this and of course neither side had ever actually met a real live Tibetan or Korean these were prejudices and uh, popular opinions that had been uh, perpetuated over the centuries with not actually ever having encountered um, a representative of that other school Buddhism has suffered in its Uh, history particularly over the last few centuries with a high degree of cultural and geographical isolation Uh, each school tends to think of itself as somehow being uh, the true one and its own internal rhetoric is very much about uh, validating how this dharma, this teaching is the true teaching of Gautama Buddha and they'll have some way of, of justifying that. Either it's a secret transmission from mind to mind, as in Zen, or else it's some secret teaching given in some heavenly realm by the Buddha and then transmitted via the Dakinis and the Nagas until it ends up in Tibet. Or if it's Theravada Buddhism, it's what the Buddha actually said and taught and has remained unchanged from this day to the next. All of these... Um, Arguments do not stand up in the light of historical awareness and criticism. What we find, which I think is a far uh, richer discovery, is the capacity of the Buddhist tradition to continuously uh, reinvent and recreate itself when it finds itself in a new situation, be it a a, a cultural situation or historical situation, a political um, or whatever, it's able, and it has shown this ability over centuries to to reconfigure itself. So Buddhism, I think, has survived, not because it's managed to preserve something, 
completely uncontaminated by the forces of history and society and culture, but because it has been able to imagine itself in other ways. And I think its history is a great um, example of human creativity and imagination. But having said that, I don't think that is something that was consciously undertaken historically by Buddhists. These new forms emerge not because some bright person said, wait a minute, why don't we do it this way? But rather just simply through the, uh, through the passage of time, through the, the gradual adaptation, a bit like an organism adapting to a new environment, these new forms have evolved and emerged. Perhaps one of the things that might make a difference, perhaps a crucial difference, in the way in which Buddhist ideas and practices evolve in, uh, in, in, in a modern society. And I don't want to say Western here. I don't think that geographical distinction is very meaningful anymore. But in a, in a modern world, we, is that we, I think for the first time, have this tradition of looking at historical contingency. And at the same time, we cannot but recognize Buddhism as incredibly diverse in, within any Western country nowadays. Um, you can, within, you know, you can, it will take you maybe an hour or so to be able to have exposure to a Tibetan tradition, probably three or four different Tibetan traditions, likewise Japanese, Chinese, Thai, Burmese, as well as a number of new reform movements like Soka Gakkai or the FWBO or something like that, we cannot but acknowledge the, uh, the, the, the plurality of this tradition. And I think it's increasingly difficult, although this doesn't prevent people from doing it, to insist that this particular version is the true one and the other ones don't quite cut the mustard as they say in America. Unfortunately, sectarianism, again, seems to be a very adaptive strategy. And uh, we always, I think, particularly when it comes to our most cherished beliefs, uh, somehow have to insist that that way of seeing the world is the true one. And we cannot really accommodate... Um, someone holding a view that is in contradiction to that. In the kind of world we live in today, such, sex, such, such kinds of division um, have become increasingly dangerous, and not just dangerous for our own spiritual or mental health, but dangerous perhaps even for the survival of the species and the planet. We only have to look at the two fundamentalisms that are currently at war with each other, those of the, the Christian right in America and uh, the Muslim Islamist movement to see that the potential for uh, destruction and violence um, is enormous. So somehow we have to, I think, go beyond um, the insistence that a particular 
belief, be it Buddhist or Christian or Muslim or whatever, um, is, is, is somehow absolute and not negotiable or somehow not um, anything that can be uh, denied or refuted. And I think one starting point here, with particular regard to Buddhism, which is what I'm going to focus on, is to begin to apply the three marks of being to the tradition itself. To begin not to to, uh, pretend that some Buddhist doctrine, teaching, practice is somehow eternally validated for all time and all places, but rather to see that every form of Buddhism is likewise something that has emerged contingently and dependently on a variety of circumstances which in turn have changed and shifted over time. And to begin to explore the possibility of a tradition that's, um, uh, that, that celebrates innovation, that celebrates transformation, that celebrates change. And to recognise also that any particular form may be adequate, may be appropriate for a given situation, but as circumstances shift and change, that form may, sh- may be shown to be unsatisfactory, undependable, inappropriate in other conditions and at other times. And to recognise at the very heart of the tradition is the fact that it too is empty of any fixed essence or nature or identity. The Buddhism too is selfless. That it is a tradition that is a movement that's continuously capable of um, evolution and transformation and adaptability to new circumstances. And this I feel, or these these different aspects I feel, are are very much um, what might allow something um, uh, in a way quite liberating and quite imaginative and quite creative to come forth in this tradition. I'm also aware um, that possibly the majority of of Buddhist institutions and, and schools and traditions that we find in the world today are very resistant to that kind of idea. There's a a strong uh, attachment very often to particular ways of seeing things, particular doctrines, particular forms of practice. So the approach that I've been suggesting um, in these talks this week has been in many ways about trying to strip away what appears to be um, a a cultural artefact, of Buddhist tradition, um, ideas that are perhaps no longer appropriate in the kind of way, in terms of the kind of way we understand the nature of the world, the nature of life today. And what I found in my own um, study uh, and practice is that I found myself going back uh, more and more to the earliest uh, strata of uh, tradition, uh, that which is recorded in the Pali, 
and, and I mean, some of these texts are also found in San, San, Sanskrit and, and, and uh, Chinese and Tibetan. But the, the, but the most um, uh, complete body of early, early materials we find in Pali. Now, I'm not suggesting, as I think I mentioned before, that what we find here are verbatim transcripts of what the Buddha said. I mean, that would be akin to a kind of literalist fundamentalism. We find in the Pali tradition, too, exactly the same problem. We find that there are elements there that are clearly just a reflection of the ancient Indian view of the world, and I would include in that its cosmology, its system of different realms, the belief in reincarnating minds and souls and spirits, the idea that somehow everything that happens to us is the consequence of some distant, unknowable cause of an action committed in a past life. All of these things are not intrinsic to what the Buddha taught, but simply a feature of the world, the worldview in which he lived, in which he taught. But we also find um, within these uh, texts, we find certain uh, core ideas, uh, core intuitions perhaps, um, that seem to be quite distinctive in terms of what marks the Buddha's teaching off from what was current even at his own time. And what I've tried to um, present during this week are what I feel to be some of these core insights. The three marks of being, uh, I think, is one of them. Um, the idea of dependent origination is perhaps the core one. The notion of the four truths, uh, the eightfold path. And no Buddhist in any tradition would question that. But what happens when we, as it were, strip everything away, we strip pretty much everything else away, or at least suspend belief in such things, and try to somehow, um, having gone back to these basic ideas, try to imagine what kind of dharma might um, emerge on the basis of those um, uh, views. We also have, I think, at the same time as these doctrinal issues that I've been discussing, we also have in, uh, throughout Buddhist tradition the um, issue of authority. And who has the authority to say these things? You know, what authority do I have, for example, um, to say what I say? On what basis do I say this? On what basis do any of us, in fact, come to hold those beliefs that are most central to our lives? In many respects, um, we take a jump. We take a leap. It feels right on the basis of everything we've read and thought about and meditated about and discussed and so forth. Then, at the end of the day, this is what I believe to be the case. And each of us will arrive at that, although we like to think we've done so by strictly rational and empirical means. The chances are we've taken lots of leaps of faith. We have drawn conclusions which feel true, that seem to be the case. But, in fact, it's quite difficult 
went to defend those in the face of those who would oppose them. But that, I think, is unavoidable. But one of the ways in which Buddhism has traditionally um, established uh, structures of authority has been through its um, insistence on this splitting of reality, um, which again is something we've mentioned many times already. Splitting reality between body and mind is a crucial one, probably a necessity in order to explain the theory of reincarnation. But at a more philosophical level, the splitting of reality into an absolute truth and a relative truth, or an ultimate truth and a conventional truth. That this, as I've already said, is not something the Buddha in the early tradition ever mentioned. It's far too similar, I think, to the kind of normative religious language that he was seeking to free himself from. And it's not problematic merely in that it, it carves reality into two, a kind of um, messy, corrupted world that we live in most of the time, holding out at the other pole the notion of something pure and true and absolutely uh, real. And Buddhism has brought into that. It, it, it does carve the world up that way. We saw it with Buddha nature, how that is done. And even the body-mind split is a very um, important basis for that kind of bifurcation. And as we see the, uh, the development of Buddhist thought, more and more does there come to be a priority placed on mind, um, whether it's then called the one mind the, in Zen, or whether it's called uh, the true mind or Rigpa, or whatever it might be. The, the, the emphasis, uh, especially within about the first thousand years of Buddhist history, begins to prioritize uh, the, the spirit, the mind, the soul, and the almost inevitable corollary of that is a demonization of the body, of the material world. Um, and very often this is also a basis for a kind of patriarchy as well. Women tend to be sided with the, uh, the, the messy world. And the male principle tends to be that... Um, embodied in these spiritual ideals and so forth. And it's not just a philosophical or a, or a theological problem we have here, but I think it also underpins the hierarchies of power that Buddhist institutions have embodied. And as we'll see, um, in, in most Buddhist traditions... Um, the institutions are controlled by an elite of male priests. This is undeniable. Um, that has been a tradition of nuns, uh, of women practitioners in all schools, but pretty much without exception, uh, women have never really been um, enabled to assume positions of authority. And I think one of the reasons for this, apart from the social and the cultural habits of those societies, 
is because there is underpinning it this split, this dualism into these two sides. And what happens um, over the course of history is that there tends to be an ever-widening gap between the experts, in other words, the priests and the monks and the lamas and the roshis and the ajans, on the one hand, and the humble mortals, men and women, um, uh, who are left kind of stranded in the mire of samsara. Um, And if they're lucky, and if they're generous enough in funding the monasteries, then they might get reborn with a better chance next time round. Um, And and although I might be speaking slightly uh, cynically about this, um, you only have to go to an Asian Buddhist country to see the reality of it. For most uh, non-monastic lay Buddhists throughout Buddhist history, their role has largely been one of um, observing certain moral codes and um, sustaining the uh, institutions um, of the monastics. Now, whether that particular model is sustainable or not, I think also has to be thrown into question. There have been movements historically in which the contradiction between extreme sort of monastic separation and affluence and power um, bit, uh, uh, versus the, the life of the ordinary person on the street has become too extreme. And so you get uh, breakdowns. Uh, you find it um, in, the, in the origins of Zen, in the origins of the Vajrayana, the tantric tradition, and you find it, for example, in the origins of the Pure Land tradition in Japan with Shinran, and also Nichiren would have been another person who, who somehow said no you know, this is somehow not the way it should be and I feel that at our time too we are at a point of tension um, in which a modern uh, liberal more or less egalitarian democratic society is now encountering these Buddhist traditions uh, which are very attractive in many ways. They seem to offer a spiritual practice, a way of life, a system of ethics, a system of philosophy that seems to be very much um, in accord um, with our own current ways of thinking. But at the same time, we often uh, uh, jar when uh, at the recognition that these are um, institutions of power Um, that seem to be very authoritarian, uh, seem to be rather embedded in their own dogmatic certainties and are highly resistant to criticism, uh, let alone change. And this is simply, I think, a description of the situation in which we find ourselves. The consequence is that, um, historically, Uh, Buddhist institutions have, like most religious institutions worldwide, tended towards um, uh, infantilizing the ordinary person, uh, making them into somewhat like children or treating them like children and demanding a kind of total submission. 
uh, in some Buddhist traditions, particularly evident in Tibet to some degree also in Japan, you have effectively um, a spiritual aristocracy in place, um, a closed system um, in which an elite uh, preserves its own powers. That's not to say that amongst these elite, almost invariably men, you will not occasionally find a very wise, very compassionate, and and a wonderful exemplar of what Buddhism can be. Uh, I'm not suggesting that's not the case. And in fact, in my own life, probably the most impressive and influential people uh, that I've met have come from that background. That's not the point. The point really is whether whether for people to evolve and, and live enriched and highly individuated lives based on these basic ideas, it's necessary to have those institutions of power in place. I personally don't think it is. The other um, difficulty when we look at how Buddhism has evolved uh, into these religious institutions is we find that it has departed rather radically from what the Buddha himself had in mind. And again, I found this is one of the great uh, um, virtues of going back into the early Pali materials. We get a picture of a man who had no intention to create religious institutions. One of the... um, If you read the... the, um, the, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the, the discourse on the great passing, the last months of the Buddha's life, described in quite some detail. It's the 16th discourse of the longer sayings of the Buddha, the Diganikaya. You have repeatedly the Buddha saying, after I am dead, the Dharma will be your guide. He's not, uh, he refuses to appoint a successor. If you look at Margin, uh, the middle length saying 108, it's called the Moggallana Gopaka Sutta. There you find, very interestingly, a text that takes place about six to nine months after the Buddha has died. And the, the political leaders of Rajgir ask Ananda, did the Buddha appoint a successor? Ananda says no. Have the, did the monks around the Buddha uh, at the end of his life appoint a successor? The, Ananda says no. And it's curious that this point somehow has to be made so explicitly. Of course, what did happen is that the first council, which takes place about nine months after the Buddha's death, already is in embryo, the beginning of the Buddhist religion, with with someone who becomes the successor of the Buddha called Mahakasapa, Mahakasyapa. Uh, the so-called the, the, the flower-holding guy. The Buddha held up a flower and Mahakasyapa smiled. There's no evidence for that in any of the texts, but um, Kasyapa clearly takes over. There's a power struggle after the Buddha's death between Ananda, who I think has a much more kind of liberal, egalitarian perspective, and Kasyapa, the former Brahmin, who actually brushes Ananda aside and takes control. And that's been pretty much the history of Buddhism ever since. 
So we have the Buddha putting forth an idea, an ideal, of um, a community, a Sangha, which includes monks and nuns, laymen, laywomen, in which, um, which is directed and guided by a set of impersonal uh, values and guidelines and teachings called the Dhamma. Without that, uh, without any authority being invested in a particular leader or person. This is a very radical break with the way in which uh, religious uh, practice and behavior had been conducted up until the Buddha's time. The Buddha seemed to want to break with that altogether. We find also in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta uh, very moving passages towards the end of the text where the Buddha says, you know, be an island to yourself. Be a refuge to yourself. Let yourself be your refuge. This, this passage is repeated several times, not just in this text, but also after the death of Sariputta that occurs sometime before. We find exactly the same reiteration of this point. In other words, it's a teaching, it's a practice that is rooted in a kind of self-reliance. Another um, passage, which I think is also uh, rather crucial, and again we find repeatedly through the canon, um, is, the, uh, is the Buddha's injunction to his, particularly here, his monks and his nuns. And he acknowledges, of course, that a period of some kind of training, of learning, is indispensable. And the monks and the nuns would meet together at least during the rainy seasons to go effectively on retreat, uh, to discuss things, to study. The Sangha is crucial. But the Sangha, the community, um, serves really as a, a resource, a support network for each individual member of that community to become uh, autonomous in their own um, lives. So you have this wonderful passage where uh, the Buddha says, and I'm quoting from memory, um, you know, go forth into the world for the welfare of the many, for the benefit of the many, and let no two of you follow the same path. It's that last sentence that I think is striking. That... Um, of course, community, working together, kinship, friendship, these things are crucial, but to what end? Not, I feel, to the end of establishing some kind of institution, which will almost invariably become hierarchical, but rather to the end of giving each person a certain autonomy and authority to pursue their own path. Now, um, in this way, too, we can begin to reconsider what, in fact, the, I, the very notion of awakening or enlightenment means, not as um, you know, a spiritual condition, uh, some kind of you know, insight you might gain at some point or another, but rather seeing that awakening or um, 
enlightenment for lack of a better word, is also understood as a process, not as a state. And it seems so difficult to break out of that habit of mind, that enlightenment or nirvana is something you attain at some point. And once you've got it, you've got it. And that's, in a way, the end of the story. All you then have have to do is somehow disseminate your wisdom to the benighted people of the world. But that doesn't seem to be the model um, that is at all implied when we think of these four truths as one leading to the next, to the next, to the next. As I outlined the day before yesterday, how fully knowing dukkha or suffering morphs into or leads organically to a falling away of grasping. And that falling away of grasping leads to a moment in which we are freed from the imperatives, the dictates of greed, of hatred, delusion. And that moment of of freedom and openness and transparency is the very beginning of the path itself. It's equivalent to samaditi, a true seeing or true vision. And a path, remember, if we think, remember that it is a metaphor, is essentially just an open space, an open, unimpeded gap. It's not a thing imposed on a landscape. It is actually a clearing. It's a, it's a gap between the grasses, the trees, the boulders, whatever it is that would get in the way. It's an open space. It's a free space. So when one goes one's own way, when one enters this path, um, one somehow is uh, free at that point to live from your own um, uh, intuition of freedom. And and, uh, one one of the characteristics that you find in the Pali texts that defines a person who has entered the path is that such a person is no longer dependent on others. Very striking passage, no longer dependent on others. So there's a quite explicit affirmation here of a a recovery of your own autonomy. Now that autonomy, that freedom... And here I think we have very much a meeting point between the Western concept of liberty or freedom and the Buddhist idea of moksha or liberation. I think the two actually come really very much here into conjunction. That that freedom is the freedom to create the path. And... Again, going back to this word bhavana that I mentioned yesterday, that is precisely the injunction the Buddha gives to the fourth truth, is bring the path into being, create the path. In other words, in all areas of your life, in terms of how you see things, think about things, speak, act, function economically, commit yourself to what you value, cultivate mindfulness, concentration... All of these things are, as it were, uh, the framework of an autonomous life that is brought into being 
through one's practice. And here I think it's where, uh, here it's, it's in this process I feel that the imagination comes into play. The, although we talk of uh, sankapa or right thought, literally, what I think we're getting at is the um, emergence of images, of ideas that are spring from this intuition we have of an empty, selfless, contingent, impermanent world. As we allow ourselves to, uh, to as it were, um, inhabit such a space, that's not the end of the process. That, as I've mentioned already, the, the experience of nirvana uh, or liberation, that's not the goal. But that's rather the, the doorway, the passageway into another way of thinking, another way of imagining. So f- from that emptiness, if you wish, from that openness, there then arises the possibility of, of thinking differently of not just repeating the habits of what you've already thought a million times before or what others have told you to think, be they your parents or be they your Buddhist teacher. doesn't make much difference. But when we become no longer dependent on the authority of others in that sense, we are freed, as it were, to imagine things otherwise. In other words, our own practice as Martin says, is one of, of, of creative engagement. That when we come into a situation, be it at work, be it with our kids, be it uh, with our friends, be it in facing some crisis, be it politically, socially, economically, what we are called upon to encounter that moment with the kind of openness and presence and non-judgmental perception that we're cultivating here on retreat but the appropriate response is not just to sort of smile at everybody with a kind of benign Buddhist compassion that's fairly useless unless it actually um, brings forth an idea an image, a word a phrase, a gesture then it is powerless It is uh, incapable of really enacting or embodying what you may value. And that's why the path, when you look at the structure of the Eightfold Path, it moves quite clearly from a formless vision into degrees of form. The first step in the process of form is samasankapa, right thought, as it's usually translated, authentic imaging, ideation, concept, words, that then in the next step, which is usually translated as right speech, I would say authentic speech, is the translation of that image or that word or that thought into an utterance. And when it becomes an utterance, it's no longer something private to you, 
but it has now been released, it's now been given into the lives of others. It's now become part of the public domain. It could be recorded and played back. It's no longer, in that sense, yours. It's been given away. And I guess, really, the root of the whole idea of dana or generosity is that one's practice is, in the end, a giving, a giving away of oneself in one's words, in one's acts, in one's expressions, in whatever it is that you, uh, that you present to others um, in any form. That is very, as much a part of the practice as is the exercise of mindfulness or concentration or whatever you do in your meditation. And it's in this sense that when we think of the practice um, as encompassing the totality of this path, when we think of bhavana, and again I mentioned yesterday, bhavana is almost, almost invariably now understood reductively in Buddhist traditions as meditation. Whereas in fact the Buddha used it to describe the bringing into the being of this whole way of life. Everything from the way we see the world to how we earn our living. And then speech then finds one form of expression, our bodily actions another. And it's in this regard, I feel, that the practice of this path is in some ways more akin to an artistic process than to simply a technical um, uh, procedure in which one moves from one stage to the next. Again, I think that not only in the West are we very much dominated by the paradigm of technology. In other words, we solve our problems by applying the right techniques. We understand the nature of the problem and then we put into action a set of techniques that can resolve it and the problem will then go away. And many Buddhist apologists um, have somehow bought into that paradigm and present Buddhism in a similar way. Buddhism is a it is a series of meditational techniques that can resolve the problem of your personal suffering and perhaps the suffering of the world. We just have to become technically proficient in meditation particularly and that will somehow sort everything out. I think that's very simplistic. Um, it's true perhaps to a point. Um, and in fact, I think some of the techniques of meditation can be very uh, effective. But that's really, I think, only... That's reducing Buddhism to very much just one aspect of its overall vision, which is not reducible to becoming proficient in certain meditation techniques. But rather, we are looking at a way of life that comes from an inner state of openness that generates images and ideas that leads to words, that leads to acts. And any word or any act, any moral or ethical engagement with the world is not something that you can know 
in advance what the result will be. There's an element here in which you are taking a risk that um, uh, simply to uh, blindly follow uh, certain sort of rules and precepts is never going to be an adequate way of engaging with the specific suffering of a particular situation or a particular person. And we see in the evolution of ethics in Buddhism a movement away from a legalistic and prescriptive ethic, which perhaps finds its clearest example in the monastic rule, you know, 227 vows, to what in, um, in, in, in theological language would be called a situational ethic. And when Mahayana Buddhism evolved, one of the one of the crucial insights that it brought was the insight into a situational ethic. In other words, you don't ask yourself what is the right thing to do as opposed to the wrong thing to do. You ask yourself what is the most loving, what is the most compassionate thing to do. In recognition that most real moral dilemmas are not resolvable by appealing to a set of rules. Um, it's all very well, well to say, you know, I shall not kill. But it's a whole other um, issue when you have to advise, let's say, a young woman who already has six kids and is living in poverty, whether or not she should have an abortion. The, the specificity of that situation, the mother's own health, the social situation, the welfare of the other kids, etc., 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 all of that has to be taken into account. And I think it could actually be uncompassionate, uh, even cruel, to say, well, the Buddha said you shouldn't kill, therefore have the child. But you have to, I think, go into that situation with openness, with as much love and compassion as you can muster and ask yourself what is the most compassionate way to advise someone in such a situation. There are many, many, many examples of such. And so the ethic of the Bodhisattva is very much about um, being able to somehow suspend uh, a kind of rigid adherence to a rule-based ethic and move to an ethic of compassion and love. And so all of this um, is very much a process, an emerging process of ever greater authority and autonomy being placed on the individual person. It's an acknowledgement of the authority of every person's imagination, of every person's capacity to respond to the unique situations that they encounter. But religious institutions, as a rule, are very afraid of the imagination. Most religious traditions want to control the imagination. And so you get, and I would think this is probably true in all of the Buddhist traditions, um, a very um, rigid kind of aesthetic. In other words, um, 
aesthetics is defined in terms of what um, expressions that our tradition has embodied over the centuries in particular states and anything that somehow diverges or digresses from that is, is somehow inappropriate or uh, unacceptable. And when we think of Buddhist art, at the moment at least, it tends to be defined by the normative aesthetic um, uh, uh, perspectives of be it Japan or China or Tibet or ancient India or Thailand or Burma and to be an artist in those cultures is very often a question of simply following very narrowly within the prescribed uh, practices and traditions of those cultures that's not to say that these works of art are not profound and beautiful they are but are they really um, is that really adequate to the emergence of an aesthetic, a communication of these values through non-verbal means? One of the questions on a piece of paper had to do with this. I feel very strongly that if, 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 if Buddhist practice cannot lead to um, an expression of its values in forms that speak to our contemporary secular condition, and by that I mean forms of art, forms of literature, forms of uh, philosophy, of ethics, then Buddhism will remain very much immured within its um, Asian assumptions and will never really become much more than a kind of ghettoized uh, religious uh, institution. But I feel the, 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 the underlying imperative for this kind of transformation um, is right there in the earliest um, ideas that the Buddha himself put forth. And perhaps just to conclude, one of the, uh, a passage I came across, funnily enough, in, in my Pali reader you know, Pali for Dummies book that I'm, I'm studying at the moment. Um, it, it gives you these passages in Pali, but it doesn't irritatingly give you the English translation or even tell you where you can look it up. You have to figure it out for yourself. And there was a verse in there uh, that I struggled with for, for a while. And this is what the verse said. It said, just as a farmer irrigates his fields by carving channels just as a, an arrowsmith or a fletcher uh, constructs an arrow just as a carpenter uh, fashions a piece of wood atanam dhammati pandita the wise person tames the self now what is striking about this passage is that sorry it is actually in the Dhammapada. It's verse 80 or 88, I forget which, of the Dhammapada. I've read it, you know, I've read it before, but it's never struck me in that way um, that it did when I read it in my Pali reader. The main point being that the word self is in the accusative, atanam. The word self has the same relation to the pandita, the wise person, as does the field to the farmer, the arrow to the fletcher and the piece of wood to the carpenter. 
This is a, I mean, all translations, and I've checked them, they all say, and the wise person tames himself. They put it into a reflexive form. Because I think Buddhists are almost congenitally averse to the S word. <laughs> Whereas here you have quite clearly the S word, the self. Um, and this doesn't deny the fact that the Buddha also says en- endlessly anatta, but he also says atta. He's prepared to live with that ambiguity because that, I think, reflects the reality of our lives. And this goes back to your point. He's perfectly at home with the autobiographical self. That doesn't mean that he's somehow dispensed with the notion of no self. The two ideas are quite compatible. And in fact, the utter, the self, can be transformed like a piece of wood or channeled like a field or constructed like an arrow precisely because there is no core fixed identity to it. It's a fluid process. And what this verse points to very much is that an idea of practice as a process of of craftsmanship, of working on yourself, as we say nowadays, of actually taking this raw material of body, feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness, and fashioning, reworking, reconstructing, changing all of that. That's the field in which you work. That's the, the raw... That, 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 that's the uncarved block, as you find in Taoism, that you fashion. That's what it is that you can reconstruct and create into something which is not yet there. And all of this, to me, suggests very much a practice which is um, inextricable from a process of, of creativity and imagination. And perhaps this also gives us a, a glimpse um, of a kind of, of dhamma, a kind of practice that um, may be able to evolve. And curiously, we find these ideas by the archaeology of the earliest texts, by going back to some of these core statements that we're probably familiar with, but we've never really uh, noticed, or at least I've not quite noticed exactly what they're saying. So um, I'll stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.